Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. West German youth after World War II were a generation in shock, tormented by their country's recent history, adrift from the rest of Europe, yet their unique situation proved fertile ground for musicians who, from the 1960s onward, would develop the strange and beautiful sounds that became known as kraut rock, eschewing the easy pleasures of rock and roll and the seductions of blues and jazz. They took their inspiration from elsewhere, the mysticism of the East, the fractured classicism of modernism, the the grinding repetition of industry, the dense forests of the Rhineland, and the endless winding of autobahns, craft work, Tangerine Dream, Noi, Can, Faust, the influence of these groups' music on Western popular music is immense, yet largely and strangely underappreciated. But there's no denying the fact that they were key to the development of movements ranging from post-punk to electronica and hip-hop and to artists as diverse as David Bowie, Talking Heads, and LCD Sound System. In his new book, Future Days, Krautrock and the birth of a revolutionary new music, acclaimed journalist David Stubbs brings us an unprecedented and brilliantly reported account of the groups that created Krautrock and a social and cultural history of the country that challenged, inspired, and repelled them. Interesting coincidence. I talked to David Stubbs the same week that Kraftwerk played their first show in Michigan in well over a decade. And I began my interview by asking David Stubbs what inspired him to write a book about Krautrock. Well, no, yeah, so there were various reasons. First of all, it amazed me actually just how relatively um, unknown a lot of these bands are. They have this kind of sort of obscure sort of avant-garde cult status. But actually, you know, even people who are kind of relatively, you know, well-versed in music, you would think, really don't even know about the existence of bands like Noi or barely kind of conversant with the people, music, people like Pan. Never heard of Faust and all of these people. And for me, that, that was astonishing because um, it was also kind of sight in a way because, of course, they're avant-garde, they're extremists, they're experimental and, you know, and, and rock audiences do tend to be rather conservative. Because at the same time, they have been immensely influential in ways that are kind of... Um, not always, you know, not always obvious, especially to sort of, you know, younger audiences, you know, because obviously these groups really were knocking around in the 1970s. So there was that reason. The second reason was I think there's just a fantastic story to be told because there was a reason why they were experimental. There was a reason why they were on guard. There was a reason why they turned to electronic music. It was because they were the first generation to come through um, in post-war Germany who had kind of grown up. Uh, perhaps as children, perhaps born in the 1940s and 1950s, and only in the 1960s as they were coming of age did they become conscious of the terrible <laughs> events that their parents and their grandparents had lived through and perhaps participated in Germany in the whole Nazi era. So I think there was this huge sort of sense of culture shock, as well as it being a very kind of revolutionary time the late 60s. And, you know, they were thinking, first of all, to their parents and grandparents, they were thinking, my God, you never mentioned anything about this. The second thing, I think there that was a certain handful of musicians certainly became conscious of this idea of, like, as Germans, we need to kind of reclaim our culture. You know, we have this fantastic kind of culture from Beethoven to Bauhaus or whatever. We need to kind of reconnect with that. We need to kind of invent something that is German in origin, not borrowed from America or the UK. And consequently, the music that they kind of forged 
it's almost like a sense of beginning again, you know. And so obviously, this is why the, the great thing all these so-called crowd rock groups have got in common is their experimentalism, their innovation, whether it's pan and this kind of reconfiguration of the way that a rock group works, even though they're just using guitar-based drums um, and vocals and keyboards, or crab work, who are eventually going back to a kind of all-electronic setup. So I think those are the, the main reasons. Also, as a kid, I was fascinated. I was a bit of a Europhile, and I was just fascinated by West Germany. Um, I was a soccer fan, and it always seemed mm-hmm. West Germany seems to be kind of better than England, you know, in the 70s, although England beat them famously in 1966. <laughs> By the 70s, I was conscious, and, and I used to actually, and actually, I used to listen or watch get, you know, games in, that were being beamed from West Germany, and also that the crowds there used to have this kind of wall of air horns, which I find very, very kind of exotic and kind of alluring. And in a way, that was probably my first avant-garde musical experience, listening to this kind of, like, wall of air horns that used to get at um, soccer games in, in Europe, you know, and that, that, that prepared me for listening to things like Faust and Kraftwerk and Stockhausen or whatever. So I guess it was that as well. Take us back to the beginning with Kraftwerk. How did these guys get yeah. together? Right, well, with Kraftwerk, um, they came through like a lot of musicians. Um, you know, they, they, they were kind of, you know, they were hippie long hairs. They, um, they, they kind of made music kind of communally. They, you know, they, at university, they were, they, obviously it was Ralph Hutch and Florian Schneider with the first two. They, they, you know, and they had a kind of, a sort of an art school connection or art, you know, they played in galleries and things like that. Um, they had the same sort of preoccupation um, with, Ralph Woodward said, we had no fathers. In fact, they did have influential fathers, especially mm-hmm. Florian Schneider, who was an architect. But when they said that, they, they meant metaphorically. They had this keen feeling that it was, it was down to them to kind of reconnect with, um, you know, a past German culture. So although crap are very futuristic, there are also strong connections with the past, especially the Bauhaus movement and the whole idea of art and function. Um, art is functional, you know, and I think that's very key to the whole crap work aesthetic. So anyway, they started up in like 1970. Uh, first of all, they were called the organization. Then they gradually slimmed down to just the two of them, Ralph and Florian. They seemed to be influenced by the British artists Gilbert and George in the way that they kind of presented themselves on the sleeves, and that was all part of that kind of strange, sort of benign, almost eerily sort of bourgeois kind of look that they cultivated. I think that was influenced by Gilbert and George. Mm. Gradually, the music pared down. It had various other elements in it, and it gradually just pared down to just being electronics and just being something that was very kind of melodic and poppy. In the early days, which I don't really like to sort of they don't talk about too much, the music had was much more sort of, I don't know what's the word, bucolic. It was much more kind of free-roaming, free-ranging, and very sort of wistful, and not dissimilar in the field to a lot of the other German groups that were operating at that time. So it was really only by 1974, with Autobahn, that it almost like they literally sort of turned the ignition on the kind of new electronic music. And that moment, it's almost like a, a year zero. And, and I think that's, they prefer us to think, and in, you know, it's very nice, they would almost prefer the world to think that that is somehow when they were born, you know, like kind of robots trundling off a kind of conveyor, <laughs> conveyor belt in a factory or something like that. They, they were kind of conceived then, in a sense. They, they, they don't think, you know, they prefer not to listen to previous stuff. And I think Autobahn was picked up on by, you know, DJs in America, in, in places like Detroit. And, and Kraftwerk were always a favourite with African-American audiences. And, you know, you often wonder, what the hell is the connection between a bunch of sort of rather stiff, Teutonic, white, very cerebral Germans and like, you know, kind of black, you know, Americans, you know, um, you know, sort of steeped in funk or whatever. And I think there is a connection. The connection is futurism. I think that, like, white audiences tend to sort of be averse, or certainly were back then, averse to the idea of synthesizers and dance music. They think it's inauthentic, they think it's hedonistic, they think it's banal, you know, it's disco, whatever. Whereas black audiences and aren't investing in it. Black audiences are much more invested in... Um, 
future sounds. You know, I think that white audiences, even today, I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's kind of nost- there's constant sort of like stream of nostalgia for like the music of the 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever. And the thing is, if you're African-American, you probably don't really got an awful lot to be nostalgic about don't the 50s, 60s, 70s. And right. I think there's constantly, you know, there's, there's certainly, you know, certainly up until recently, you know, there is this investment in today or even the future. And I think that's what Crabbrook's music represented. And it did have a kind of bizarrely funky quality to it as well. So you've got this kind of futurist funky thing that I think that people in Detroit, you know, like your future people like your Jeff Mills or whatever, you know, your Derek Mays, that's what they kind of really clicked into, I reckon. That's a great point, David, because uh, when I was sitting at the Crapwork show with my wife, we were so pleased, and we noticed this because it's, uh, it's sad to say we don't see that many concerts in Detroit that ha- that are so yeah. diverse racially that had a yeah. lot of black people in the audience. And yeah, you, you really answered yeah. that question wow. because it, a lot of people who may not understand the connection between African Americans and a German techno band may be, be scratching yeah. their head, but you really uh, answered yeah. uh, that, that question. And it was so cool to to see that. And yeah, we had uh, yeah. people in the audience who were you know from from the uh, the, the original uh, electronic music movement, the techno movement yeah, in Detroit, yeah, yeah. T- Detroit, who were yeah. in the audience. Africa Bambata, I think, really sealed this kind of relationship, you know, between African American music and Kraftwerk with Planet Rock in 1982. Africa Bambata and the Soul Sonic Force, where it doesn't exactly sample Trans Europe Express by Kraftwerk. He wasn't able to do that, but he kind of recreates, you know, he sort of simulates it musically. And I think that to me that, you know, that's that in a sense is, you know, that, that was what gave birth what wasn't known at the time as the electro funk genre, whichever, which to me, I think, has a strong bearing on on hip hop, I suppose, you know, the idea of referring wholesale back to a kind of a past tune or something like that, you know, the way he does on, on that record. So, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, so if you look at Kraftwerk as being kind of ancestors of that, then their influence is absolutely colossal. Yeah, so true. You know, you know, a band, and, and I'm a I'm a little uh, red faced to say this. It took me a long time, and I, I'm a 30 year DJ here in Detroit, Eden right. Arbor, and music writer. And it was only until these albums got reissued properly on CD. Oh, what within the past decade, maybe a little bit longer than that, that I discovered Noi, and they are. Awesomely, yeah, yeah, yeah. awesomely great, and I would say besides craft work, they are cited maybe by more people in you know the the, the indie rock uh, clan as, yeah. as being really important. You know, people like Sonic Youth and and yeah, yeah, yeah. people oh, like that. So, yeah. are, are you a fan of Noi? Tell us about Noi a little bit. Absolutely. Well, Noi uh, were a duo, uh, Michael Rota and Klaus Dinger. Both, um, well, and Klaus Dinger kind of played with Kraftwerk initially, but he got disgruntled by the fact that they were going to bring in drum machines, and, you know, he was, he, he just took great homage of that. He formed Noi with, um, uh, with Michael Rota, Rota in, in, in Dusseldorf, and they, um, they only they only made really sort of three albums, and they didn't really sell awfully well at the time. But they developed what was called a motoric beat or a patchy beat, which um, no, maybe not a motoric beat, um, which Brian Eno cites as one of the kind of like the key beats of the 1970s. You know, long before anybody else. Um, and I suppose the great thing about the motoric beat is it's it dispenses with like, the whole verse and chorus structure, and it's just like ding 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 ding. ding you know, and it was you know, and it has this kind of quality of just bowling along a freeway whatever, and the musical possibilities that opened up, and there's a kind of music, it's a wonderful way of, like, I think the bands to play in that style is wonderful. You've got this kind of wonderful combination of repetition and this kind of growing and building intensity. Um, so I think you've become, you know, it's become a sort of deeply attractive style. I think nowadays it's one of the sort of things that people really fasten onto about the whole crap rock, is this motoric sound. Um, 
I'm not surprised about you not being able to get into... No, I think the tricky thing about noise is that their albums for a long time just weren't available, and all through the 1990s, it was very hard to get hold of their material, whereas Kraftwerk, I mean, it was pretty easy to get hold of, like, the influential Kraftwerk stuff. Yeah. No, it was only in about the late 90s that their music got properly reissued. Um, and so I think it's forgivable for people, you know, it's getting them a little bit late. And I think that people sometimes heard groups like Stereolab, the UK group, and they very much sort of took up that motoric sound, and they probably just thought that probably a lot of people thought that was Stereolab's invention. Right. I mean, I'm sure that Stephen Gaynor at Stereolab would have put them right about that if they just said that. But, but I'm sure a lot of people thought that because they would have, a lot of people would have heard Stereolab before they heard Noi. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, and once again, it comes back to this point about reconfiguration, about innovation. You know, finding a new way of of playing rock music and it being German in origin. I mean, that has this kind of immense sort of cultural, social significance. You know, for you know, for some people of that generation. Although, ironically, I should say that the, one of the least receptive audiences and people to, um, you know, the whole crowd rock thing are Germans themselves. Um, that's one of the massive ironies. And I think most bands that I interviewed, they would say the same thing, that, you know, they get a lot more praise and a lot more kudos when they go abroad than they do in their own country, in their own cities. And, you know, people like Cannes, there ought to be a statues to Cannes in, in, in Cologne, but they walk around completely unnoticed. Why? Uh, Why? You know, Why? I, well, I don't know. I, I think various things. I think, with, say with the objects, say, say with cuts on craft work, I think that um, it's, they do play a lot on their otherness, their Teutonic otherness. It's part of their whole kind of shtick, and it's, and it's very, very clever the way they do it, they, they, especially in the 70s, where people were still kind of preoccupied with World War II. And I think they kind of very cleverly and slyly played up to German stereotypes or whatever in a very provocative and humorous way. And that's the kind of whole dimension of, like, Kraftwerk's appeal for a lot of people, you know, whether they like them or dislike them. But, of course, if you're German, you don't think there's anything particularly funny or exotic about being German. So, you know, that whole aspect <laughs> just doesn't really play very well, you know. Um, there is that. But um, beyond that, it's, that's one of the great ironies, because on one level, you know, the whole Kraftwerk mission of, like, kind of creating this absolutely new music that's German in origin succeeded fantastically, not necessarily commercially for them, but it succeeded in so far as the sheer sort of breadth and range and longevity of, like, their influence. But in terms of, like, German, you know, in terms of, like, well, it's not West German now, but in terms of, like, young Germans, in terms of reasserting a kind of sense of cultural identity, it, it didn't, didn't appear <laughs> to have any kind of great bearing. I mean, I mean, obviously, there's a kind of great sort of, you know, there's a great techno scene in Germany, and there was, like, later there bands like Einstutz and Neubauer and DAF or whatever. But it's remarkable. You go to Berlin, and you look around the posters, and, in fact, it is still very ang- Anglophile and American-dominated. And I looked at all the big posters in Berlin for all the kind of rock gigs that were coming up. The only umlaut I could find was um, above the word motorhead. And that was, you know, it, it's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's just an extraordinary irony. And... Um, I would just hope that, that that would eventually be put, you know, be, you know this, this book has been, it's going to get translated into Spanish, it's going to be translated into Japanese, it's going to be, um, you know, it's been published in America, but um, the German edition, you know, no, no, no chance, not a sign, you know, so very odd. That is very odd, I- indeed. Mm. Would you mm. say that uh, David Bowie's Ber- Berlin-era uh, albums are the, is the, that's the music, that's the artist that perhaps uh, most conventional mm. rock listeners would sh- should go to to kind of tip the, you know, do a little tiptoe into the water of music we know, everyone knows David Bowie here in America well, to give you that sense that, of, all right, if you like Heroes and if you like yeah. the Low album, why don't you try this Noi album or this Can album? Yeah. Is that a good idea? Yeah, I mean, that's, that, yeah, that's one good idea. I mean, it's certainly a gateway, definitely. And it definitely, he made a huge influence. Uh, he was huge influence. He made a huge difference to the perception of, like, um, 
you know, experimental West German music in, in the 70s by his kind of patronage, by him taking it seriously. Because before that, especially in music papers or whatever, they took, you know, the UK music press, they, they thought it was a bit inherently comical, the idea of Germans making music. Um, they just thought it was ridiculous with their silly German accents and their, you know, and, and their strange sounds that sounds like they weren't quite getting it right and all that kind of stuff. I mean, so we're very much condescending to look down upon. There was every single headline had some stupid thing about Achtung and some Hitler joke. And even when Kraftwerk were first featured in New Musical Express, the NME, in the mid-70s, they used as a kind of illustration an image from the Nuremberg Rally. You know, because really? Some, some editor or some guy at the magazine, some production editor guy, thought that, well, a German, that'll do, won't it? But after uh. David Bowie came along, once he started taking the music seriously, Everybody took it seriously. Suddenly, anything that was Germanic had, any, had a kind of cool about it. And you notice it in the kind of the subsequent sort of names of the band, you know, whether it's Spandau Ballet or Bauhaus, people like that. Suddenly, anything Germanic suddenly becomes immensely cool. But before David Bowie, it was actually, you know, groups like Faust and Can were considered pretty comical by the kind of cognoscenti, even the cognoscenti kind of people in, in, in the music press in the UK, certainly. David, let me finish up by asking you. You write about, we were mentioned just a couple bands who you cover so authoritatively and comprehensively in your book. Pick pick one other artist who's a, a particular personal favorite of yours that you would uh, hope people will discover by reading your new book, besides, say, Kraftwerk and Noi. Hmm. Um, well, I, I I mean, I think certainly certainly Can, I think, who's in the title taken from the Greg album by Can. Um, but also the group Faust, because I think a lot of people don't know about them, and they were an extraordinary group. They were kind of two separate groups who were soldered together by a kind of major record company, German Polydor, in the hope that they'd become a sort of German Beatles. They had this kind of misguided idea that you could sort of, that you could manufacture such a thing, that a record company could manufacture such things, you know, rather than just happening spontaneously. And they sort of put these groups together, they put them out in this kind of like old school, ex-former school compound in a place that village called Boomer. And... Instead of like kind of creating something that was kind of remotely commercially viable, they made this extremist kind of avant-garde sort of Dada-ish kind of collage of, of music using electronics, using all kinds of sort of like sort of yoked together sounds. Uh, sometimes it was sublime, sometimes it was ridiculous. They glorious, glorious albums, absolutely commercially disastrous. Um, but, you know, but absolutely sublime at the same time. Um, and again, for a long time, I think they were regarded as this ridiculous kind of folly, perhaps a bit of a fake group because they, you know, like the circumstances of their formation. But their music really, really stands up. And again, and people like Stereolab themselves, although they're associated with Noi, Tim Gaines from Stereolab says actually his real favorite group in that area was Faust. Einstein and Neubaum, very much influenced by Faust as well. So I think they're perhaps a group that, they sometimes get missed out in the whole kraut rock sort of um, timeline. I think that's one group in particular. I, I think their story is a fabulous one. Uh, and they're still going, albeit in various kind of different mutations these days. Uh, so I definitely encourage people to seek them out. Thank you for listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers and our interview with author David Stubbs about his new book, Future Days, Kraut Rock and the Birth of a Revolutionary New Music. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library.